You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. All right, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TNA podcast, brought to you by the Nutmeg Assist. Myself, Ritwik Rajendran, the host for today's show, and thank you to all the listeners so far for tuning into our podcast. Hope you guys are enjoying our content as well. And in today's episode, we have a really, really special guest. He is one of the best. I mean, the best commentators out there in the football world. I'm a big fan of this particular person. A big, big fan, I must say. I have a lot of respect for him. He is a very distinctive and versatile football commentator. It's none other than Derek Ray. Welcome to the show, Derek. A pleasure having you on the show. The pleasure is all mine, Ritvik. Thank you very much for that grand introduction. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you really, really deserve that because the work you've done in football is nothing short of an inspiration for all the aspiring commentators and broadcasters out there today. And I, I'm, I'm not just bluffing this because I've actually had people tell me that, oh my God, you got Derek Ray on the podcast. <laughs> please please ask him this please ask him for tips because he is truly an inspiration he's truly a role role model for every single one of us so thank you so much and yeah let's get on with the podcast and i i, I hope you're doing good during this tough times obviously the football has returned and i guess you're a bit busy with that now but how's been how's how's the lockdown been for you or you know, the whole voodoo thing with the coronavirus Well, I've tried to stay calm here in the Boston area. I live on the east coast of the USA in the state of Massachusetts. So I've been home for the best part of two and a half months now. And I suppose on one level, it's nothing completely new because a lot of my work is solitary. What is different is travel is usually a big part of what I do. I go to Germany a lot. I go to the UK a lot, to other countries as well. But that simply hasn't been possible. So we have a situation now where the Bundesliga is back in business, and that is normally my bread and butter. But I simply can't be involved in the games because of my location. And, you know, that's the way it goes. There are, to be honest, more important things for all of us at present. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely right with that. It's it's kind of it's kind of a big mess right now in the world but i guess things are getting better day after day and that is something to be positive about or cheerful about so the first thing that i would like to ask you about is the return of the bundesliga the bundesliga is the first top 5 european league to return as we saw france's league 1 was cancelled so i guess the results are i mean psg might be declared champions as well so bundesliga made the bold decision to restart to resume with their games and now how do you view the whole return thing of the bundesliga i mean from a from a general perspective do you think uh, it was the right decision to resume the way it has right now 
Well, I've been covering the story on social media. I have the advantage that as a fluent German speaker, I can read what's going on in the newspapers in Germany, watch German TV every day. And I think, you know, if you analyze this rationally, and I'm obviously a football fan, so I'm happy to see football back. But I think we have to look at it from the point of view of the average German person. And it would be fair to say that it's not without controversy this return of the Bundesliga. There are many in German society who feel it's a little bit too soon after what has happened, notwithstanding the fact that Germany has done a better job in terms of testing capacity, in terms of being ahead of the curve, full stop. But you've got to give credit to the DFL, the organizers of the Bundesliga and the second division in Germany, because early on they came up with a plan. They wanted to have their league back in business. They didn't know if it would be possible. They certainly were aware that if it were going to come back, it would be without fans inside the venues. So this detailed hygiene plan was crucial, and it involves a lot of testing. Again, Germany is in a position where it can do that because there hasn't been a strain on the testing system in a way that there has been, for example, here in the USA, uh, where I'm talking to you from. So um, it's one of these things that has evolved week by week, but we all wondered when it did come back for real, um, would it work? Would there be problems? And they've taken a first step, and there haven't been any problems. In fact, it's been pretty well received as maybe a blueprint for other leagues in other countries. But I still think it's a case of step by step. And in fact, Christian Seifert, the CEO of the DFL, has said himself that it's a matter of going week by week and earning the right to have another match day and then earning the right to have another match day after that. So it's still wait and see, but an encouraging start, you'd have to say. Yeah, that's really true. And we saw with the last week's games as well, with the whole celebrations when the players scored the goal and the whole sanitizing thing as well. People sitting in the stands were wearing masks and you could see the players celebrating, you know, social distance celebrations as well, especially starting with the road derby where, uh, I mean, after the first goal was scored by Haaland, you saw the celebration as well. So, I mean, obviously the players were kind of taking a jibe, but I guess that is definitely the right thing to do. I mean, social distancing as much should be done. But also a fact, I mean, it's also a fact that the players come into close contact when they're defending a set piece and stuff like that. So what does, you know, what is your perception on the whole celebration thing? And no. Well, I don't see a contradiction between the two of them. I know some people do, but obviously it's a contact sport and there is testing going on twice a week for these players and coaching staff and associated personnel. Uh, and a lot of people have said to me, well, you know, if they can tackle each other, if they can breathe on each other, you know, why shouldn't they celebrate? I think there are a few points. Number one, it's about minimizing the risk. So you take every chance you can to minimize this. It's also about setting an example. So, you know, if a young aspiring footballer watches a team play and watches them celebrate by hugging or by kissing, as we saw in one of the examples last week in the Hoffenheim-Hertha game from the Hertha players, then that young person might think, oh, well, if they're doing it, then, you know, let's just get back to normal again. So I think you do have to think about the responsibility to society as a whole when it comes to these things. And that is why you'll see substitutes wearing masks and being socially distant from each other. Um, 
The other thing that has come up this week is that, and the league has reinforced this with the clubs, if there were to be celebrations, the like of which we saw from Hertha last week on a wide basis, then the local health authorities in Germany, and they're the ones who make the decisions about contacts and who has to go into quarantine and all the rest of it, they are entitled to look at the TV footage and based on a celebration, you know, if there were a positive case at one club or another, say, okay, we need to, you know, use this person as a contact and that person as a contact because what we have on film here. So, you know, it's not just as simple as saying, oh, well, just let them do what they want. There are implications for wider society and all of this. Yeah, that's absolutely correct as well. Uh, social distancing, you see people in different parts of the world not taking it seriously at times. And that has obviously and definitely led to some really, really bad outcomes. Because I've seen that here in India, a lot of people taking the lockdown or we have a lockdown here. It's still up and running. So we had kind of three lockdowns so far. The fourth one, this is the fourth one. So I mean, the fourth time timeline or the time period as I can quote and there are times when people don't follow certain rules and put themselves at risk, not just themselves, but even the others as well. So from what the Bundesliga or the whole, I mean, the people in Germany have decided, the, the authorities have decided, I guess it's it's definitely for the good. And on one hand, when you think, yes, the football, I mean, football being back is you know, kind of positive for people as well during these tough times, but you definitely have to take uh, the safety measures as well, like you said. So that is absolutely true uh, based on what you said. And coming on to football, we saw the road derby. Dortmund defeated Schalke 4-0 last week. Hertha had a really, really good win as well against Hoffenheim. And uh, Bayern Munich also went, uh, went out winning Hansi Flick's team, winning again and keeping that short gap at the top we saw Gladbach winning as well Leipzig had a tough game definitely so what is your you know overall take on the return of the Bundesliga yes we saw a lot of you know pre-season kind of uh, football pre-season level football as well at times but you can obviously say that this is because they had a 60 year I mean complete layoff and they're playing football after, I guess, 60, 64 days, I guess, if I am to be accurate. Uh, so definitely that kind of slow and what, what, how do I put it? That lag, laggy football is bound to come. So what is your whole take on last week's games and which game did you enjoy the most? Well, I went into it with low expectations because of what you said, because of this long layoff and the fact that Most of the teams had really only had six, seven, eight days full contact training when you add those days all together. So we were entitled to think that it wouldn't be high paced. It might lack a little bit of the intensity that we would normally expect to see. But I was not disappointed at all. I I thought the standard was good. I thought the games were fascinating. I thought Borussia Dortmund were far too strong for Schalke. And in that sense, it didn't really feel like a Revier derby because the dynamics of that fixture, and it is my favorite derby anyway, in the world normally dictate that anything can happen 
But once Dortmund scored the first goal and the second goal and Holland was magnificent and Julian Brandt was tremendous in that game, then you knew what the outcome was going to be. So very excited to see Borussia Dortmund back and firing as they had been prior to lockdown. I thought Borussia Mönchengladbach were excellent in the late game on Saturday against Eintracht Frankfurt. I know Frankfurt had been struggling before the stoppage, but Gladbach really continuing where they had left off. And that's now two ghost game wins for Gladbach, if you like, because remember, they had prevailed in a match without fans against Köln just before lockdown. And then on Monday, I thought Bayer Leverkusen really took the game by storm against, admittedly, a poor Werder Bremen. And I do worry for Werder Bremen. They're such a great team from the tradition point of view, but things look bleak for them right now. However, Leverkusen had a job to do. And they did it. And Kai Havertz is you know, one of the best players in world football now. And he's only going to get better. And a couple of headed goals from him in that game. Young Florian Wirtz became the youngest ever to line up for Leverkusen in the Bundesliga. Yeah, Bayern got the victory as well. But without too much polish, I'd have to say, that doesn't really matter on the grand scheme of things. They defeated Union in Copenhagen. We know Bayern can play better, but three points for Lewandowski and company as they take another step towards another Meisterschale. Yes, absolutely. And I'd like to talk about a few players as well who've been really impressive or kind of special this season, not just the players of particular teams as well as the managers. So starting with the Dortmund, the the guy who Dortmund bought in the January transfer window from Red Bull Salzburg, RB Salzburg, Erling brought Holland. He's been an absolute revelation for Dortmund. He had the same form when he was at Salzburg. He was on fire in the Champions League as well. And he's kind of translated the same form here into the Bundesliga with Dortmund. I guess he has 11 goals for Dortmund so far right now, which is amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing, I'd like to say, because... What a, what, a, what a signing he's been for Dortmund, probably, I'll put it like this. So what is your take on Haaland and what do you think about his ceiling? Well, I knew he was good. I'd watched him with Salzburg, but I didn't know if he would hit the ground running in the manner that he has. Nobody could have predicted what he's done. You mentioned the goals he scored, double figures now in Bundesliga terms, in addition to goals in other competitions. And he is just unstoppable. And he plays with an inner confidence. You can see that from his demeanor. He makes it look ridiculously simple. And that is the fact of the matter. And Borussia Dortmund were already very confident in attack, but he has taken them to a completely different level. And we're blessed to be watching him in German football right now. Um, I got a bit annoyed when after three or four games, I was receiving messages on social media from people asking the question, well, do you think Dortmund will, will hang on to him? Will they have to sell him in the summer? You know, of course not. It's still early in this Borussia Dortmund career. And let's remember that he made the active decision to go to Germany and to go to Borussia Dortmund. He didn't want to go to England. He could have. He had many teams who wanted to sign him, but he knows that the best place for his development at the moment is German football and specifically Borussia Dortmund football. And as I said, we're all very lucky to be watching him in action right now. Absolutely. Like you said, he had offers from England, especially I guess Manchester United were very highly linked with him. But like you said, he chose the right destination, Borussia Dortmund, where he 
would not have much of a media criticism if he you know kind of took a little bit time to uh, set the ground running but it's been amazing it's been amazing from the start what Haaland has done you could see from the games how easily he connects with his teammates Julian Braun Thorgan Hazard Rafael Guerrero Ashraf Hakimi as well who's been really really impressive for Dortmund on loan from Real Madrid and you see how he connects with his teammates you see the simplicity in his style like he wants the ball at his feet every single time although he's not the fastest probably among all the other players he really knows how to finish he really knows how to put the ball back into the back of the net as well so what a special player we have on our hands like you said another player who's been very very heavily linked with the move to england specifically manchester united as well is jaden sancho the englishman he's been he's been outstanding for the last two years including this season for borussia dortmund immense output with the assists immense footballing skill footballing ability and it's definitely no surprise that a club like manchester united are ready to splash whatever money that takes to buy sancho so what i mean sancho came into the bundesliga from city as kind of a very very raw player a youngster because he hadn't played much of, much of steeny of football i would say before that and he's kind of absolutely revolved into a global star today i guess one of the most oh, probably when you talk about young footballers kylian mbappe comes first always but you can always put kylian mbappe into the senior players category because of the achievements or the level that he's attained but when you come to the young players you have the likes of sancho who's been very very consistent and delivering in the last two years so what's your take on jaden sancho for the last two years and do you think it makes uh, i mean it makes a lot of sense for him to move to a club like manchester united right now where he'll be under pressure from the very first whistle well i think that is the big decision he's got to make for himself and he has been given freedom in germany and he knows that and he made the decision to move to borussia dortmund as as we mentioned earlier erling holland did more recently and it's a matter of does he want more of this does he want more of this freedom as a footballer or does he want to go back to the pressure cooker of english football which has its own dynamics and is not necessarily kind to a younger player uh, i mean he might feel he is ready to go home in his case but selfishly i hope that we see him in germany for another year i don't think it would hurt his development i don't think it ever hurts your development to be in germany so clearly he wants to go back to england at some point but you know 14 goals 15 assists in the current bundesliga campaign and he is an eye catcher he's a crowd pleaser but he does it all within the structure of the team under lucien favre they have so many top notch attacking players it really is an array of of high level talent up front and sancho was all part of that and he knows that it's not just about him and this is the other thing when you go to a, a club say manchester united you have to be convinced that there are players around you that are going to make you as good as you can be as is the case with sancho at borussia dortmund so it's not necessarily as simple as saying yeah let's go back to england and you know as if by magic it will all happen for me here as it has done in germany yeah it's really a big big step for him if he is to move to manchester united you know there's a lot of pressure there at the moment 
they definitely lack a proper right-sided winger as well. Yes, Daniel James was a signing that was made last summer, but definitely he was not the the long-term plan because he's he's also very young and like he hasn't kind of hit the heights this season, but has done a decent job. So if Sancho was to move, he'd definitely start for United if you look at the quality of the team. And if you say they, they have... They, I mean, when you play talk about Manchester United, they have a really good attack. I would say it's it's not bad because you have the likes of Marcus Rashford, who's been really good this season before the injury. Anthony Martial has been a little bit inconsistent, but he's also a really good player to say uh, to be to be really honest. And adding Sancho would be a definite, definite that that would really look a definitely amazing front three for United. So, but it's all about the pressure and. Yes, finally, it boils down to you know, what Sancho thinks, with, I mean, what is right for his future as well. So, that is with the Dortmund players. Coming to Bayern Munich, the Kings in Germany, the leaders in Germany, should I say, they had a pretty much, I would say, underwhelming spell under Niko Kovac last yep. one, one and a half years. The Champions League, last year's Champions League campaign didn't go to plan. Bundesliga, yes, they had success, but it was never good. He was always under scrutiny. He was always under criticism. I don't think the players really bought into his philosophy as well. And it was a complete mess. I, I, I wouldn't say complete mess, but still it was kind of a mess there. But Hansi Flick came in. He's completely turned around Bayern Munich again. And they're playing amazing football this season. Especially, you can see Robert Lewandowski is almost 30 now. I guess he's 30. I'm not really sure about that. But he's definitely probably during the... I mean, he's definitely entered the latter stages of his career. And he's looking in amazing shape. And he's following the same, same... Habit in front of goal as well, scoring for fun, playing so impressively as well. So, what's your take on Hansi Flick's Hansi Flick's team and Bayern probably for the I mean under Kovac and also a few words on Robert Lewandowski's complete you know, revelation in the league. Well, Lewandowski is 31, in actual fact, as we speak now, but still as sharp as ever and looks destined to win the. Torschützenkönig award, as we say again, the, the goal-scoring king prize. And, you know, really just has a wonderful attitude to the game, tremendous commitment. And Bayern know they have something special, someone special in Robert Lewandowski. I think it can be a very fractious thing to answer the other point about a coach. You can have somebody who on paper is a good coach, but maybe just doesn't fit a particular club. Now, Niko Kovac had, of course, been at Bayern as a player. He is a Berliner, though. He's from Croatia, if you want to talk about his roots and who he played for at national team level. But in terms of upbringing, he's a Berliner. And um, it just did not seem to gel from the start. And I felt sorry for Kovac because I don't think he's a bad coach at all. But he maybe isn't a Bayern coach in terms of his style and his outlook. And he always seemed to be trying to prove himself. It was always a case of of having to, to get that nod of approval from the big decision makers, from Uli Hoeneß when he was in the, the position, from Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, from Hazan Zalihamidzic, the sporting director. And it just felt as though he was one accident away 
from being relieved of his duties, even when he did the double. I mean, for most coaches, doing the double, the league and the cup, that would be more than acceptable. But it was the manner of the exit from the Champions League, really, that, that did him in, and people remembered that. And then when things didn't go smoothly at the start of this season, and, of course, the, the 5-1 defeat away to Eintracht Frankfurt when Jérôme Boateng got sent off, that was that decision made. Now, Hansi Flick, of course, was part of... Kovac's coaching staff but Flick who is a man of the south you know I mentioned Kovac being a Berliner Flick is a, is a man of of southern Germany and just has a different kind of way about him and I think what we have now is and what we've had for the last few months under his stewardship is a return if you like to to how Bayern like to do things a lot of good man management, understanding the players and the little things that make them tick. Thomas Müller is a prime example. He couldn't get into the team latterly under Niko Kovac. With Hansi Flick, he's just about the first name on the team sheet and he has delivered. And, you know, so many people doubted Thomas Müller when, uh, for example, Philippe Coutinho came into the club. There was a, a strong feeling that that might be that for Müller. Not a bit of it. And other players, too, have been revitalized. Thiago is having one of the best seasons of his career. And again, we wondered if that really was likely earlier this season. So, you know, things have picked up under Hansi Flick. And I did back Bayern to win the title at the start of the season when Kovac was in charge. Now that Flick's there and they don't really do very many things wrong, notwithstanding it was a below-par performance against Union, I have to feel it will be Bayern's title again. Definitely. And the way he is put David Alaba into centre-back and starting Alfonso Davis at left-back. They've been It's been a really, really good decision. Alfonso Davis, since he's put at the left-back role, he's been absolutely mesmerizing. One of the best youngsters we have in the world right now. Yes, he came with a lot of promise when he was signed by Bayern. I mean, a lot, lot of North people from, from, from Canada as well as the US talk very highly of Alfonso Davies and there are really, really good praises for him even on Twitter by certain football experts as well. But I don't think no one expected him to, like, like, like Holland, no one expected Alfonso Davies to hit the heights so quickly and de definitely at left back because he is kind of put David Alaba into the centre-back and Alaba has been exceptional as well at centre-back. He is a player who can play in multiple positions. He plays in midfield for Austria. Left, he's played left back for Bayern as long as I can remember as well. One of the best left backs, one of the best players in the game as well. So a few words on Davis's, imp I mean, rise to you know, stardom. Well, living here in North America, I had heard quite a bit about Alfonso Davies and his attributes and how good he was going to be. And then Bayern signed him. But, you know, for the life of me, I didn't think that the impact would be as immediate as it has been with regard to Alfonso Davies. One thing Bayern didn't think they were getting was a left back. But as they say, necessity can be the mother of invention. And Niklas Zule got injured. Lucas Hernandez got injured back in the autumn and they had to have a rethink. And as you mentioned, David Alaba sliding into central defense. He can do that. He's comfortable doing that. In fact, it does give them um, an extra string to their bow, having somebody who's so comfortable on the ball passing out of the back. Jérôme Boateng, who we thought was, was done as a Bayern player, he's been revitalized. And so they moved Davies to left back. 
and they discovered that what they had in Davies as a left back was a useful attacking weapon and then some. A player who's an absolute flyer who can destroy the opposition with his raids on the left. And I was at the Allianz Arena recently for the nil-nil draw with Leipzig. But Davies was one of the better performers, especially in the first half. And in the commentary position at the Allianz Arena, the fans are just right in front of you. And when he went on a couple of his runs, his daredevil runs, I just watched the fans in front of me as I was commentating. And I could see them sort of, you know, moving off their seats. So excited were they um, at the prospect of this young player who they have in their ranks going about his business in that fashion. So I think the future is very bright. You never quite know with a young player how he's going to develop uh, in years ahead. But so far, extremely promising signs. And my goodness, Bayern are happy to have Alfonso Davies on board. Yep, spot on. And especially in the game, the Champions League game against Chelsea as well. He was all over Reese James, another young promising right back. He was absolutely amazing in that game as well. Bayern topped, I mean, absolutely dominated Chelsea. They made Chelsea look like an average team, I would say, because Hansi Flick, since Hansi Flick has come in, he's completely revitalized a lot of players, like you said. He brought in a style of play which is very attractive to watch. And yes, he's done a really good job as well for Bayern. So that's probably it with Bayern Munich. And moving on to two more teams who've been kind of impressive this season, I would say are Leipzig under Nagelsmann and Borussia Mönchengladbach under Marco Rose. Leipzig is always... I mean, it, it, it is quite controversial when you talk about Leipzig, the way they've come into you know German football and how they got promoted into the Bundesliga. There's a lot of controversies with that. I guess they're one of the most hated teams. I guess I saw... I, I read somewhere in the survey that Leipzig are one of the most hated teams in the Bundesliga and... The, the, way, the way the fans have described why and and also considering uh, the German fan culture, the football culture in Germany in, into consideration, you kind of get why. But they've done a really, really good job in terms of football and you know, bringing in young players, you know, kind of changing the whole landscape, footballing landscape, the way the club operates. It's absolutely perfect from top to bottom. The likes of Ralf Rangnick, for, for, for the last few years. They had uh, Ralph Hasenhutl as well as a coach at time and he was also brilliant. And now they've brought in Nagelsmann in for a long-term project where they expect him to probably do better, qualify for Europe, maybe win titles. The appointment was definitely taken to go to that next level. I guess probably beat Bayern or take over the throne from Bayern, I would say. Probably that's why Nagelsmann was bought in by Leipzig and the way they played this season has been really good as well. They had a really good spell, uh, spell until January and after that it's kind of the, the I mean obviously you can't have a really really amazing spell throughout the season. It's, it's very hard to do that but they've been really really good till January and they've kind of slipped up and that's where Bayern have taken advantage. So what has been your take on Nagelsmann's first season at Leipzig and 
how do you think Leipzig as a club is run? Well, you're right when you say that they are not loved by traditional German fans because the feeling amongst them is that Leipzig have come in and done things differently and gone against the grain of that tradition. They've almost sort of bought their way in, you know, initially buying the rights to a fifth division team, SSV, Makranstedt, and then working their way up the divisions. But a lot of German fans feel that it really is a bit of a, a corporate takeover and it's not the true essence of what German football is all about. The other view would be that Leipzig have, have given fans in Eastern Germany a team to follow in the top flight. And that you know wasn't happening, hadn't happened for a long time. So, you know, there are two ways to look at it. I do agree that in terms of the footballing philosophy, it's spot on. It's very progressive. It's about getting young talents in at a fairly young age, developing that talent, eventually selling those players on and doing it all over again. With regard to Julian Nagelsmann, his remit has been to revolutionize things on the playing front. Because up until now, Leipzig have had this very strong DNA. They've only been around for a few years, but this DNA of playing the counter press. So in other words, Leipzig are sometimes happy not to have the ball. They're happy to sort of lie and wait, uh, win the ball back around the halfway line and then before you know it, three or four passes later, the ball's in the back of the opposition net. And, you know, it's still very much the way they, they are and can be with the players at their disposal. But Nagelsmann has tried to make them more rounded. And it's something that Ralf Rangnick was looking at before he left. Um, under Ralf Hasenhüttl, they were very much a counter-pressing team, pressing and counter-attacking. The thing now with Leipzig is, if you look at the squad, and it's a very strong squad, they have just about two identically strong first 11s, if it ever came to that. I mean, the squad is now big to the point of being bloated. And some of the pioneers, and when I say pioneers, I mean some of the players who helped them win promotion, people like Yusuf Paulsen, Emil Forsberg, they are not automatics anymore because you have some of the the pretenders to their crowns, if you like, in place, the likes of Christopher Nkunku, Patrick Schick, who's made a very good impression in his first season wearing the colours of Leipzig. So it is all about, you know, revolution, yes, I used that word earlier, but, but also evolution and, you know, moving from this sort of, I'm not going to say one-dimensional style, but you used to know what you would get with Leipzig. And maybe it was a bit predictable if they wanted to move to a higher level. But now they can be a possession team. They can be comfortable in possession. You're also right to say that some of the results recently, just before lockdown and last week against Freiburg, have been on the iffier side. And it's probably true to say now that their main priority will be to lock down one of the Champions League places rather than winning the title. Although I was looking at the fixture list between now and the end of the season, and they probably have the easiest running, uh, run in rather, of any of the top teams, any of the teams in the running for the Bundesliga. And with eight games left, I was looking at this corresponding stage in the first half of the season against those same eight teams who they have to, to play. They gather 22 points from the eight games um, prior to the, the winter shutdown. So who's to say that they're completely out of it? They're long shots now, and certainly first priority will be Champions League football. Yeah, that's pretty much understandable as well. And another team that's been really impressive this season, 
has been Borussia, sorry, Borussia Mönchengladbach under Marco Rose. They've been really, really brilliant. I caught their game last week against Frankfurt and they were really, really brilliant. I like you have a lot of if if, if you want to analyze a tactical, I mean the I mean t- tactics of a game. Gladbach is the team to watch. They have a lot of different style, I mean different ways of playing, and the way Marco Rose has come in to Gladbach and put everything. I mean he's kind of put the uh, pieces of the puzzle slowly, slowly. He's putting in the pieces of the puzzle in and. Look, it looks like they're going to qualify for the Champions League next season, and who knows? They might, they might even win the Bundesliga if if things go right. Yes, it's tough, but who am I to rule rule out the chances? And they've also had some really good play. They also have really some some really good players, especially in the attacking front. Marcus Thuram, he was really good. I mean, he was he was not lightening up in the league one last season. He was part of the relegated team as well but since he's come into the Bundesliga now I guess he's had 15 goal involvements in his first season in the Bundesliga not really really impressive for someone with you know with, with, with a name that that comes with a huge expectation because obviously his father was an absolute beast an absolute legend of the game so so how how how's been uh, the, how do you rate Gladbach? I mean, in terms of quality and also in terms of uh, conviction and probably if you, if you had to give some credit to Marco Rose, no, how, how would you put it? Well, I would put it this way: Borussia Mönchengladbach entered the season knowing that they wanted to change. Now, they made this bold coaching change. Max Eber is the guy who makes all the big decisions at Borussia Mönchengladbach. And he did something that that certainly not every sporting director or general manager would do. He decided that the Dieter Hecking era should be over, that it was a bit too predictable. But in contrast with Leipzig, who we discussed earlier, who wanted to to have that possession advantage if they needed to play that way... um, Gladbach were already a possession team, but they have transformed from that into more of a power and counter-pressing team. They can play the possession game too, but they wanted to improve on the power front. So, you know, not for nothing do they call it Projekt Power in Germany, the power project. And, you know, that plays to the, the great strength of the team. You mentioned Marcus Turam. They've got this wonderful front four when they're all on the pitch. Turam... Alassane Plea, Patrick Herrmann, who's having one of the best seasons of his career, and Breil Embolo when he's in the lineup as well. So Marco Rosa came to the club with this vision of how he wanted to play, having been at Salzburg, and um, it's been a terrific success on, on all levels. And you really cannot fault Gladbach. You look at their position, that speaks for itself. They were leaders earlier in the campaign, you know, quite a bit into the Hinrunde, as we say, the first half of the Bundesliga season. And I think it probably is a bit too much to ask of them to go on and win the title from here. But as we speak now, 22 points from nine matches in the second half of the season. And, you know, really, all things considered, it's been fantastic. Definitely. The, fr- the friend for you mentioned has been really impressive this season. Patrick Herman. 
if I was to get a Gladbach jersey, I would definitely have his name on the back because he's been there for a, for quite a long time now and he's one of their main players as well. And when you talk about Brie Lambolo, he was kind of an injury-prone player during his time at Schalke. But he's completely changed, he's completely transformed since he made that switch from a striker to a number 10. So that is probably one of the best decisions he's made in his career. He's been a completely revitalized figure as well. And for me, he was definitely a shout for the man of the match, probably in the last game against Frankfurt as well. We was really, really impressed with his performance in the game. The pace, the power, the drive, and he can also finish as well. So really, really good quality for a player to have like Embolo. So, yeah, that's with the teams on the Gladbach. And before we move on to discuss about your commentary career, one last thing that I want to ask you is that I heard or read that you have a soft spot for FC Cole or Cologne, <laughs> as we call it in English as well. So yeah. what, what, what's the story behind that then? Well, the story really is that when I first started going to Germany back in the 1980s as a student, Köln were one of the better teams. And there was always just something sort of quirky and charismatic about Köln as a city, about the people. And of course, they have a real live goat for a mascot in Hennes, and that's been a tradition for many decades now. But I just always found there was a certain joie de vivre about the city of Köln. Now, in more recent years, and if somebody has latched onto the Bundesliga in the last 10 or 20 years, they won't think of Köln as a success story. They'll think of Köln as a, a team that, that sometimes is up, sometimes is down, uh, a bit of a yo-yo team between the divisions. But... Uh, it is the city I've spent most time in in Germany, and it just has so many of its own little quirks from the sort of beer that they serve, you know, the Kirsch beer in very small miniature glasses. And they very quickly uh, are um, not so much filled up as you're given another one after you finish the first one. And, it, you know, just all these great, great traditions. It's the carnival city, you know, and, and everybody kind of looks out for everybody else. It's just all about community to me. And so I have a soft spot as a commentator. Obviously, when I'm commentating, I'm straight down the middle. But, you know, if I'm being honest, then there is something about Köln for me. <laughs> Absolutely fair enough. That's a good... Uh, a good story or you know, something that is nice to hear as well because you know, I mean not so long ago Köln had a really really good season they finished in the Europa in the Europa League spot as well I, I particularly remember the uh, the Anthony Modest season I, I, I would put it that way because I recently wrote an article about him as well uh, it, it was kind of a revival story for Modest so yeah I would like to call it the Modest season and they're, they're really a good club to follow so yeah, fair enough for what you said. And coming on to the main part of the podcast, discussing about your commentary career, uh, like I, I was reading some facts about you probably a year or so back, and I came to know that you used to carry a tape recorder in your early life and you used to go watch games, and that's how you used to practice doing commentary when you were young? That's 100% true. Yes, that's how I really began. I was a self-starter. I was somebody 
as a young person in Scotland, where I'm from, who I think knew early on that he wanted to be a commentator. Now, uh, I was also realistic. I, I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I don't come from money. I don't come from privilege. I don't come from any of those things. So what are the chances that, you know, a young lad from Aberdeen is going to get the opportunity to be a commentator? Well, I, I sort of logically thought to myself, the only way is to make my own commentaries. So in the 1970s, we began to have our own recording devices, cassette recorders. Um, I got a portable one and I would just talk to myself commentating on matches in the playground at school or in the local park. And then I plucked up the courage to take my recording device with me to Aberdeen Football Club's Pataudry Stadium for reserve team games. And I would talk to myself and I'd get a few funny looks. And then I moved to first team games as well. And this was a pretty good era for Aberdeen. We were on the verge at that time of becoming the best team in Europe under a fellow by the name of Alex Ferguson. I wonder what happened to him. Um, but uh, <laughs> but a lot of people would call me in those days, you know, you're that, that daft lad who, who talks to himself for 90 minutes and do a tape recorder. But I did that for a number of years before then getting the chance to, to work for the local hospital radio station. And hospital radio in those days, I don't know if the concept exists or has existed in India, but it was a way of basically providing a radio service for people in the local hospital. And that meant it could be very personalized and it meant a lot of local content. Uh, content. We didn't have in those days, um, you know, local radio stations the way we do now. So I was an amateur, but I was given this chance and it meant I could commentate on the Aberdeen games for the hospital radio station. So all that experience at a young age, I didn't realize it at the time, but it actually put me in a pretty good position to become a professional at a young age with this wealth of experience, amateur experience, albeit under my belt. And also another surprising fact is the way how you called your first game. So I guess you called your first game for BBC for, for an, I guess, a Scottish Premier League game. I don't quite recall the teams, probably Kilmarnock and like, yep. I, like I don't recall that, but yep. it was quite funny as well, probably a surprise because the commentator, the inline commentator, David Franzi, had some injury, and that's how you got a chance, I guess. That's how I got my big break, and you always need a big break in professional <laughs> broadcasting, or probably in life as a whole. And I was 19 years of age. I was a student of German and politics at Aberdeen University, and David Franzi was my hero. So he was the voice of Scottish football. He was the person everybody in Scotland knew, and and I certainly idolised because I wanted to be him someday. Uh, and I'd been in touch with him over a number of years, sending him tapes of my work, and he'd always been very encouraging. Right writing back to me with a few uh, tips and tricks of the trade. So when I was 19, I had written again to David with a tape, but this tells you everything about him and, and what he was like. Instead of just writing back to me, he actually gave the tape to his bosses at the BBC. And that's how it all came about. They said, oh, David Francy has given us a tape here. We really like it. Could you come down and have a chat with us? So we had a chat. And they said, you know, next time there's an opportunity, we can't say when that will be, but if there's a chance to get you on the air, we'd like to do it. Well, it came sooner than anyone could have predicted just a few weeks later when David Francie had picked up an knee injury, couldn't do the Kilmarnock-Dumbarton game. So I made the three-hour train journey from Aberdeen down to Glasgow, stayed overnight, did the game, thought, well, okay, let's see if we can, you know, do everything that we can to get another chance took the train back home. There was a message, called the BBC, called the BBC, and they said, well done today. Um, we have a second one for you coming up in 
midweek, three or four days' time from now, and it's England against Scotland at Wembley, the oldest international fixture <laughs> in the world. And um, that was my second game on the air, was at Wembley. I'd never been to Wembley. I'd never even been to an England-Scotland or Scotland-England game. But at 19, there I was, thrust into the spotlight. Definitely, sometimes let play a part as well. And about your childhood, you practicing with a tape recorder, practice makes a man perfect. Like 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 this as well. So it's it's quite a quite a wonderful story on how you got your first big break and about your whole childhood as well. How you prepared yourself to be a commentator. And another thing that I would like to ask you is, do you feel the pressure to you know? probably go and perform because people have a certain expectation of you because people I mean if you if you go on say for example you're gonna go and deliver a really really good performance on the commentary box today for a game and when you come out next week for another game people have a lot of expectations because people look up to you I'm saying this very honestly because for me uh, definitely in India uh Say for example, I don't think everyone is really, really fluent. But in in fluent in English, I mean. But in my case, I was fortunate enough to study in an English medium school. So yes, I was good in English as well. But to be honest, I learned a lot of words by watching football. And football commentary is something that I enjoyed a lot, a lot during my childhood. Definitely with the likes of because here I, I mean Premier League was. A weekly thing here because we used to have broadcast of the Premier League, one of the biggest leagues in the world as well. I used to try to catch each and every game on a weekend. I used to sit there, watch the commentary, enjoy the game. That used to be a perfect weekend for me. So when you go out onto the commentary box, do you feel the pressure to perform or do better every single time? Yes, I do. I have to be honest. I still have the adrenaline buzz before a game. My heart is always thumping before a game. I see that as a positive. I, I in fact, am of the view that the day that doesn't happen is probably the day that I should think about packing it up because you do have to have that healthy tension before a match and you have to set high standards for yourself. And, and, and I certainly do. And that you know begins with the preparation that is ongoing over a number of days and weeks before any game. And then just in the minutes before that red light goes on or before the, the countdown hits, you know, zero, um, you know, you are more tense than, you know, normally would be the case in an average day. What I find, though, is that once on the air, then the tension level drops. And I, I do have a way of always saying to myself, just be calm. You've done this so many times before. You're going to do it again, you know, and, and that's my way of, of dealing with it. Not everybody deals with it in the same way. Some people are very fidgety and and, you know, visibly look nervous. I think um, if you saw me uh, on air right at the start of a broadcast, I would not look nervous, but I would look very focused, um, very intense and I actually do find it quite hard in the hour before the game, if I'm working with a co-commentator, I find it quite hard to have normal conversation. Um, you would notice that I'm very quiet for that hour because everything at that point is about concentration, is about making sure I have everything in my head. I'm also at that stage looking at the players, looking at the boot colors they're wearing, looking at any potential changes in, in uh, appearance that I might have to know about during the game. I'm checking, I'm rechecking. 
sometimes running around as well, depending upon what you're asked to do before the game in terms of a, a stand up on camera. So all these things come into it. Um, but, you know, I do enjoy that pressure, uh, especially during a World Cup or a European Championship when it usually is a game you know, more or less every day or, or every second day and traveling in between. And, and then you really just have to, to rely on your, your training and your experience, knowing that there's going to be pressure and you're going to be tired. And that's the other thing that people don't realize, too, is that if you're traveling a lot between games, fatigue can be a factor. You know, sometimes you're only getting four or five hours sleep uh, on the back of one game and into another. So all these things come into it. But I'm glad you've asked that question because it's sort of the unseen side of commentary. And and I like the fact that you appreciate um, English language commentators because I think words are important and a commentator can help make something memorable. Uh, I, I do believe that we shouldn't overpower the moment, that the magical moment that happens. But if we can provide a nice, memorable soundtrack to that moment um, that, again, doesn't get in the way of, of what's most important, which is the football, then I think we've gone part of the way towards doing our jobs. Definitely, and definitely when people talk about the goals or when they make uh, some videos or short clips of, of, of certain goals, they put in these commentaries, the, I mean, they're incredi incredible to listen to, they're incredible to watch as well, and it stays forever in your heart when you call out certain words, certain when you call out for certain goals or certain moments of the game, I, I, I wouldn't mention probably a, certain, a particular commentary snippet of yours, but there's been so much from you and different commentators around the world as well, which definitely stays on, definitely in our hearts as well. And I mean, broadly speaking, in your view or in your perspective, what do you think was your favorite call, probably the, your favorite piece of commentary that you've done in, in your in your career? I think the one that stands out, and this again is down to the football that was in front of me, but hopefully the commentary living up to the occasion. Um, 2005, the Champions League final in Istanbul between Milan and Liverpool. And I was there for ESPN. In those days, ESPN had rights to the Champions League in many territories around the world. And again, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. I, I commentated on all the Champions League finals in that period from around 2003 until 2009 until ESPN lost the rights uh, in the USA to Fox and in other territories to other broadcasters but you know to have a, a script like that <laughs> you know three nil to Milan uh, Milan at the time the class of Europe Liverpool were the plucky underdogs and I genuinely at half time was checking my notes to make sure I had in my head what the biggest margin of victory was in a European final up until that point but lo and behold the the big turnaround in the second half and Liverpool managed to get to extra time not much happened at extra time to be fair but then the penalty shootout that saw Liverpool win the Champions League in the most unexpected fashion and um, you know listening back to that and actually I haven't listened back to that one for a while or I hadn't listened back to it for a while until quite recently somebody asked me to to do something about that game for, for a particular project so I did and I must say I was very happy listening back to it. You're not always happy listening back to things as a commentator. Sometimes we can get annoyed by our own turns of phrase or our own voice. You know, it just depends on the, on the game that we're listening back to. But the words definitely flowed that night. And, I, you know, even listening now, and it had been a while, 
um, since my previous, um, you know, taking in of, the, of that particular final. But even listening now, um, the words surprised me. There, there were things I said in commentary that I actually don't even remember saying. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really glad that you picked out the Istanbul game because I'm a Liverpool fan and that is one of the biggest or one of the most special games that I watched in my life. And I wasn't a Liverpool fan then. I guess I was just nine years old when I watched the game and it was just my third football game. It was just the third football game that I was watching on TV and probably it was the second live football match that I was watching on TV. And I wasn't supporting any football club then, but that one match was probably the reason why I completely got submerged into football and probably that probably is one of the reasons why I am currently doing the podcast with you as well and I like I can't recall the I mean probably I don't recall probably the commentary part from that game because I was just nine obviously because it's, yeah. it's, it's been quite long since then but that was a special moment and I'm definitely sure that I I might have enjoyed the commentary the game as well because like you said, what a game it was. What a game. So, yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for bringing out that game once again in the podcast. Because Pleasure. That kind, of, that kind of brings a lot of good memories as well. Definitely speaking as a Liverpool fan. <laughs> and coming on to your experiences around the world, you actually commentated in several World Cups the holy grail of football. You commented across different leagues as well, the League One, the Europa League, the Bundesliga, etc. Even the MLS and the Eredivisie. And also in Brazil, I guess you had a short spell. And from all these experiences, if you had to pick a player that you enjoyed watching the most, who would that be? That's a really good question. And interestingly, the one who jumps out at me and this was sort of a, a period of time or over a period of time covering La Liga would be Ronaldinho. Now, you know, you'll say, hang on. So you've covered Messi and you've covered Ronaldo and, you know, you've covered other great players. Why Ronaldinho? Um, I just think that when I think of Ronaldinho, I think of grace and style on the pitch and magic and Again, I was lucky enough to be the Primera commentator, the Spanish Primera commentator for ESPN in the 2000s, concurrent with the Champions League commentaries that I did. So I saw just about every Barcelona game. And you must remember that when I started covering Barcelona, they were not the force they are now. There had been a sort of a changing of the guard in Spain. You had Deportivo winning the title. You had Valencia there, Atletico a few years back uh, prior to that. Real Madrid was sort of up and down. They were on the verge of this Galactico era. But Barcelona had, had sort of lost their way a little bit. And Ronaldinho helped them rediscover who they were. And, you know, I just think back to remarkable individual moments. And he was a gift to a commentator. Um, the one that really stands out was a game at the Bernabeu in which Barcelona were victorious. And Ronaldinho scored a goal that had the Real Madrid fans at the Bernabeu against their great rivals on their feet, applauding the goal. That's how good it was. And that's how good he could be. So it's not to say that 
Ronaldinho is the greatest footballer of all time, but he's one who certainly spoke to me. And as I said earlier, it's right place, right time. And I was around to commentate on him from my point of view. He was around for me to commentate on. And um, yeah, thank you, Ronaldinho. <laughs> That's definitely a really uh, amazing pick because Ronaldinho was probably the first YouTube footballer, I would call, the, 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 the player whose videos were really, really global and reaching out worldwide. If you look at people from where I live, uh, I mean, I live in a state called Kerala from India and we have a huge, huge following for Brazil and Argentina. If you see a World Cup, if, if you come here during a World Cup, you see houses painted in yellow, houses painted in blue and white. It's a, a complete craze during the World Cup time and Ronaldinho is a player who a lot of kids look up to even today. Even today when kids play probably on, out on the streets, out on the field, on the paddy fields, because we, we, we have a lot of fields here. It's, it's kind of a green state, if you call. And people, I mean, kids definitely play in the fields wherever they get some good space. And you see them doing tricks and probably the present generation might say Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar. But if you go to my generation, I guess 90% of the kids here were aspiring to be a Ronaldinho because Ronaldinho was magic. Ron, that smile would definitely, you know, kind of, it, it was kind of a psychiatric treat, that smile, because it would, that smile made us smile. That's, that's what I have to say about Ronaldinho. And yeah, it's, it's, it's great that Ronaldinho is one of the players that you enjoyed commentating the most because he was an absolute sensation on the pitch as well. And another thing that, probably what I want to go through you is your highs and lows in the, in the, in the commentary business as well, because look at, even you look at, uh, if you look at the biggest commentators across sports as well, probably if I take cricket, you have Tony Gregg, Harsha Bogle, etc., who are really, really one of the best commentators. I, like I've heard probably I would say, and when you come to football, you have, apart from you, we have other people like, Martin Tyler, John Champion, Peter Drury, and a lot of other people as well. I mean, I, I I can't recall all the names at right now, probably, but but every single one of these guys, they have their own high moments as well as times when they have a bad day, probably in the box. In, in your experience, probably, did you have both the times? I mean, both the highs and the lows, and how did you handle it? Yeah, highs and lows, all part of the job. But I think the one thing we would all say, and they're all friends of mine, all the names you've mentioned there, Martin, John, Peter, other great commentators, Ian Dark, who is probably my, my closest friend in the TV commentary business. Um, you, you're not doing the, the, the game for review the next day. It's live football. And, you know, it's difficult nowadays with social media and with clips being played back and forth. If you get something wrong, then people are very quick to to tell you about it, you know? Um, but you have to have thick skin. You have to believe in yourself. You know you're going to make mistakes. I mean, I would challenge anybody in any field to go through, you know, a week of work and not make a small mistake somewhere along the line. 
So, you know, I think you go into it. We're all perfectionists as commentators, and I, I certainly am. I'm my own biggest critic. If I get something wrong, then it will eat away at me for far too long. And, and I do work on that and not, uh, you know, as I get older, not being as angry with myself. Um, the highs and the lows. Um, the highs for me have been, you know, goodness, you know, how many World Cups? I've been involved in every World Cup, and that is the pinnacle to be at a World Cup and, and to, to know that you have the best players in the world in front of you. You have the world watching. You're part of it in a small way as a commentator. And you're always thinking about, you know, doing yourself justice and doing the game justice and making sure, to be honest as well, that you don't mess up. That's always sort of at the back of your mind as a commentator. The Champions League finals, obviously big highs uh, and all of them in their own ways at each and every venue. And that was always part of the story as well, the city we were in, because that was sort of the extra character in the drama, if you like. Istanbul one year, Paris the next, Athens after that, Moscow, Rome. I mean, these are great European cities. And I was so privileged to be able to broadcast these big finals from those majestic cities. Um, the lows that I might uh, pick out, a couple, really. There was one... And this can happen when, you know, you're doing games off tube. And there was a game I was doing from Serie A off tube probably almost a decade ago. And I won't bore you with the exact details of it, but essentially we went into a, a sequence of replays. I'd already called a goal. We went into a sequence of replays. There appeared to be nothing wrong with the goal. And then by the time we came out of the replays, the ball was, you know, being kicked around near the halfway line again. And it was only about two minutes later, my producer got into my ear and said, uh, that goal that we thought was a goal, apparently it was chalked off. Now, sometimes when you're off tube, you are completely powerless because you are not seeing the referee. You're not seeing the assistant referee. You just don't have that shot. And you can sound like, as we would say back home, a right chump. And people, people, people are merciless. They think, oh, what a useless commentator you are. You got that wrong. And you can't really say, well, you know, in my defense, I'm watching it off a monitor like you are. Did you know without the, um, you know, through looking, looking at the pictures on the monitor? You know, probably not. So we are in the, the firing line in that sense. Um, also, during the World Cup in uh, the last World Cup in Russia, and it was my last game. And, you know, it was tiring. There was a lot of travel. Uh, a grueling World Cup to cover, but, you know, invigorating at the same time. And we were throwing to break at half time. And um, if you remember, it was England, Sweden that we did in Samara. And Harry Maguire had scored for England just on half time. And we had a, a fairly kind of antiquated audio setup in that game so that when my producer, who was sitting next to me, spoke in my ears, it would blot out everything in the headphones, so I suddenly couldn't hear myself. And we got a very quick count to break. Um, so in other words, what happens is the producer will count me to break, and all of a sudden he's in my ear going, six, five, four, three. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing the narration of the scenes as the, 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 t the players come off, and it's Harry Maguire. And, you know, I'd been obviously saying Harry Kane a lot during that World Cup because he had a particularly good World Cup. So I got the shot of Harry Maguire. And of course, I know it's Harry Maguire. I've already called his goal. But um, what I said was on air, I said, and there it is, just as the producer kind of came in and said six, five, I said the goal by Harry Kane. It's England one, Sweden nil.
and I went to break. And I had no idea I had said Harry Kane. I had not the foggiest idea until all of a sudden my phone lit up at halftime saying, you did know it was Harry Maguire who scored that goal. I'm thinking, yeah, of course I did. I called it as Harry Maguire. But again, people are cruel when it comes to that kind of thing. So social media at halftime, which I shouldn't have looked at, uh, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of people saying, you need to you need to learn who the players are, you know. And that just tells you how fractious this business is and, you know, how one moment can really ruin it for you if you don't have that thick skin. And, you know, I, I won't lie, I... I beat myself up about that for for days you know it was my last game i i but and i didn't even know i had made the mistake when i did it at the time but we all make mistakes we have to tell ourselves that and you know in the grand scheme of things if a mistake going to break um misspeaking it wasn't that i didn't know who it was it was a case of misspeaking while under time pressure with somebody in my ears trying to talk and listen at the same time if that's the worst mistake in the grand scheme of it then i guess we'll take it definitely definitely because social media can be sometimes really really cruel to you especially twitter because i'm under a lot and i i really know how cruel it can be to people when you make the smallest of mistakes so yeah that happens and like you said it's a really really tough business because you get the video immediately these days people sometimes record videos on TV and you no know, kind of put that instantly on social media if they have to praise someone or probably they have to criticize someone as well and that probably happens when you speak because that they probably like for normal people like us that happens on a daily basis because we are lost in some world because we are lost in the match and when someone says something you kind of tend to say something else because i've done a lot of similar things when i kind of had uh, a chat over whatsapp with my friends because and I, like i've had people because i sometimes chat with my friends when i watch a football match probably just before the half half time break probably something if it's a important message or so and to be honest i actually typed in footballer names to my friends and they've asked me what when the context has been completely different as well so that happens and like you said social media is obviously cruel these days a little bit more cruel these days as well well But, i think i think yeah. the one thing if i could just interject on that i think the one thing about our job is you know we are talking on an unscripted basis for 90 minutes and we're also talking and i always say to people on the outside who think our job is easy just you know try it if you could for a couple of minutes you know put on the headphones and see if you can talk and you know find the right words at the right time with other people talking in the headset too because that's the thing that people don't realize we have directors and producers talking to us as we are talking and that is a skill that takes a long time to develop so you know if we once in a while misspeak you know i i hope that that people have the the grace to forgive us because um trust me we we don't do it very often i mean the, the names you mentioned earlier martin peter john uh, ian dark as who i mentioned um you know we put so much into it but occasionally we are going to to make a mistake and there just kind of is a bit of a, a as i would say a bit of a gotcha culture out there nowadays where people like to say oh look at him how how stupid is he you know and then play it over and over and over again when in truth um that person might almost never make a mistake yeah definitely true so yeah that that's probably the highs and lows that anyone probably anyone even if you were 
say even one of the greatest footballers in the world leo messi has his highs and lows cristiano ronaldo yeah. has his highs and lows yeah so that that is part and parcel of your, a, a person's life so yeah that's bound to happen and talking about your favorite commentators like i i've mentioned a few names you mentioned ian dark as well if 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 you take a different sport i mean in in into account probably baseball cricket other sports as well hockey or whatever do you have i mean who who are probably probably you can mention two to three names who you probably look up to even today in in the field of commentary well i'll give you one from cricket and this person who sadly is no longer with us uh, was for me one of the great broadcasters on cricket in the 70s and the 80s when i was watching it a lot and that would be richie benno from australia and he had a very iconic style unmistakable style i'm a big believer that the best broadcasters are unmistakable you know within two three words who it is who is speaking and richie benno certainly fell in that category for me you mentioned tony greg another fabulous broadcaster as well but benno was before greg greg was actually still playing while benno had embarked upon a, a tv career and iconic memorable intelligent um you know and in fact i used to have this little tribute to benno when when i ever had a game that started as we did in scotland that started just before 12 o'clock and i would come on the air just before 12 o'clock i had this little thing i would say i don't think people realized it was a tribute to benno but he used to always start his broadcasts morning everyone and and that was how that was how i would start the broadcast morning everyone and and nobody knew that it was it was a tribute to beto so um he would be the one from cricket that i would certainly single out in terms of baseball you may not know this voice but the first baseball voice i really ever heard was that of vin scully here in the usa and vin scully had a, a again you know it keeps coming back to this a voice that was instantly recognizable and you know i won't try to impersonate him because um you know i, I wouldn't be be doing him justice for that but he was a storyteller he was mellifluous uh, he had all the qualities you would look for in a communicator so so he's probably the one i would give the nod to Uh, on the american side in terms of all the ones i've listened to al michaels is also fabulous and you know probably if you were to to look at one american commentator who can just about do the lot in terms of sports you would look at al michaels and uh, again dynamic style um you know great sports commentary voice and we certainly all look up to him in the the sports commentary business irrespective of where we live yeah yep those are some really um, good names that you brought up definitely um yes i probably have not heard of most of them because because of the new generation thing probably and yeah. uh yeah i i probably catch not much of baseball so yeah so that that's a limited knowledge for me but as far as cricket is concerned yep uh, tony greg is one of the person who i listen to more i mean a lot of times harsha bogle as well who's an indian who speaks really really well so that's also yeah. one person that i really really love and before we wind up the podcast we i have two more questions for you one is what when when you have the mic what is the goal that you have in front of you or when you probably go to a new game do you do research pre research on the teams the players and no things that you you want to 
take notes of them or do you carry notes with you when you go to a game and when you, when you start calling the game what is the goal that you have in your mind as well well, in terms of the preparation, that begins often weeks or months before an assignment. So if I know I have a game, you know, a month away, then I'll just start scribbling. And I do keep notes. In fact, I'm very old school. I handwrite everything and I color code everything. And that goes back to my languages background. You know, I'm a fluent German speaker and I learned German, learned to speak it fluently by writing things down. So if I were doing, say, Bayern against Borussia Dortmund, I'd have Bayern on the left-hand side of the page all in red. I'd have Borussia Dortmund on the right-hand side of the page all in black. And I would just start scribbling. The top half is all player information. The bottom half is more historical and, and news-related stuff. And I go back to the last time I covered a particular team. I see what I wrote about them then. And then I'll recycle some of it. I'll discard other bits of it. And then I find new information. And a lot of the job is very solitary. And it's just trawling for info. And I can go hours, you know, just looking for a new line. It can sometimes take me two or three hours. And then after it, I'll think, OK, that was worth it because I found a new bit of information that I can use during the commentary about, say, Leon Goretzka of Bayern, just to give you one example. And this continues all the way up until match day. And, you know, by the time match day comes around, the whole sheet will be filled in. But the idea is that it's a bit like revising for an exam so that come exam time, come kickoff time, everything that I need is in my brain. Yes, I have it on a sheet and I can look at the sheet if I need to. I know instinctively where it is on the sheet, but in an ideal world, I really won't need the sheet at all because it's all there. The goal I have going into a game is to be an informed friend of the viewer. I don't want to be a know-it-all and I certainly don't want to, as I said earlier, overpower the game because the game is what people tune in for. A commentator can enhance it, but a commentator can equally ruin it. And I never want to be the commentator who is ruining the experience for the viewer, if at all possible. And you can ruin it in a number of ways. By over-talking is the most obvious example. You know, it's television and not radio. If it were a radio broadcast, then you are talking nonstop to provide that descriptive um, narrative that is necessary. On television, you can already see the game. So my job is not to describe, it is to provide a soundtrack that enhances the experience for the viewer. And I'm very conscious of when to talk, when I shouldn't be talking, when to let the crowd do the talking, um, when to work in an anecdote about a player. That usually comes with when a close-up is going to arrive on the screen from my match director. And with experience, you get to know when the likelihood is that you will get that close-up. And in some situations, you have the director telling you when it's coming. In others, if it's a world feed, that's not the case. But again, you just sort of have that sixth sense in terms of, of knowing when that might arrive. So it's all those things put together. Um, you go in with certain themes in your mind, but you are ready to throw them out the window if the game goes in a different direction as it always seems to you know you, you can't really plan how a game is going to go you can have ideas about how it might go and it does help the commentary to have that structure in your mind but to go back to what i said at the beginning of this answer it's about trying to be a friend hopefully a friend who knows what he's talking about and is giving information in a timely manner and in a memorable manner. Yeah, and jotting down information, like you said, is probably one of the most uh, probably one of the most important things, in my opinion, because 
when you have a stoppage probably like an injury to a player or some other event where you have some stoppage you probably need to get the fans involved still because if you have a lot of dead space there it kind of gets a little kind of i mean because there is a connection between the fans who watch on the tv on their tv screens and the match that's going on live and that bridge probably for me is what the commentator gives they connect they connect the people worldwide that's that's probably my definition for a commentator or my view for a commentator they are the connector they are the storytellers they are the poets or whatever i can call by and if you have a dead space that obviously probably kind of disconnects you a little bit and like you said jotting down information historical information probably or information which is something uh, probably a, new, a news article probably of every recent news article or something of that sort yep that 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 probably does us a lot of uh, good as well because we get to hear a lot of new things as well so people don't always go and probably read news and stuff like that and sometimes you hear new stuff in commentary and and you you say to yourself oh that that's something that you i didn't know earlier yeah. and yeah this person has probably given the information to me and yeah that you probably remember that for the rest of your life as well because you you're definitely watching the game you're enjoying the game as well and when someone passes you an information in that particular moment that always remains and that that is basically my view and probably people might differ from that as well so yeah that that is something which is probably one of the most important question that i wanted to ask you as well and before ending the podcast one final thing that i want to ask you is a lot of aspiring broadcasters have come to me and told me that we want you to ask derek for tips for aspiring broadcasters for people who want to start people who dream to you know commentate games people who dream to broadcast and yeah basically aspiring broadcasters what would be your tips for the beginners the starters and people looking to build a career in this field well i would say first of all don't be afraid to make yourself different i did that at a young age we mentioned earlier my amateur commentaries at the playground on a tape recorder you have to do something you have to put yourself out there and you have to separate yourself from the competition because it is a highly competitive field so think about something that makes you special and that could be playing to your own strengths your own interests but you do have to get yourself on some sort of recording device and you know you have to work on fluency and voice and all the other related qualities um work hard i mean there is no substitute for that you've really got to love it it can't just be a job that you sort of get into and and see you know how it goes it has to be a a passion it has to come from the heart and you have to realize that it is a seven day a week job even though it seems as though it's not you might only be broadcasting a couple of games a week but you're thinking about those games constantly around the clock and also vocal discipline is important and you do need to sort of train your voice a little bit rather like a singer might train his or her voice with regard to high notes and low notes and being able to control that sort of on demand in the course of a hectic game so that's a few things there so to summarize i would say make yourself different work hard on the voice uh, as well as just having a good general work ethic love it 
be passionate. Yep, this is great advice. And for people listening to this, people who've asked me, here is your advice. And yeah, this is one hell of an advice as well from someone who's really, really one of the best, one of the best in this field, I'd say, because, I mean, I probably have a list of people in my mind who've really inspired me, probably. I mean, hearing to you guys have really, really been inspirational for me because I probably wouldn't have probably created a podcast or might have never probably hosted a podcast if it, if it wasn't for you guys. From my childhood itself, you guys have really been an inspiration for me. Derek, especially you, Peter Drury, Jim Beglin, John Champion, etc. You've been really, really inspirational. And something that I would like to say is thank you because I have no other words. I'm especially, it's a little silly saying to you. I mean, you people like you, uh, but I would, from honestly, from my heart, I would really like to say thank you for the things you've done, the things you're doing right now, because commentary is definitely a kind of poetry, a kind of storytelling. I would call it an art as well, which inspires a lot of people around the world, you know, to watch the game. Like I said a few minutes earlier, you guys are definitely the bridge, the connectors between the viewers and the footballers. So thank you so much for all all of that. And thank you so much for coming on to the show as well. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've hosted a lot of podcasts before, but uh, honestly speaking from my heart, this is definitely the best podcast I've hosted. Probably a lot of things that I have got to speak with you and a lot of new things that I've learned from you as well from this podcast. So thank you so much, Derek, for joining in to this show. Yes, it's a long one. So thank you so much once again. Well, Ritvik, thank you very much for taking an interest in commentary and for the chance to talk about commentary with you. And my very best from Massachusetts to all my friends in India. Thank you so much. And to all our listeners as well, who are the main part of this podcast. You guys make the podcast alive. And thank you to everyone who's listening to the episode. You make the podcast successful. You make the message successful as well. And thank you so much once again for listening to the episode, guys. Until the next episode, goodbye.